It's a problem endemic to the tech world, that we're always so focused on what's coming next that we forget to look back at where we've been. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Chris Riccamini, who was there at LinkedIn when Kafka was born. He tells us how it and stream processing framework Samza came about, and we also talk about what he's doing these days at WePay, building systems that use Kafka as a primary data store. And honestly, he was just a great guy to talk to. Check it out on today's episode of Streaming Audio, a podcast about Kafka, Confluent, and the cloud. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, I have with me today in the virtual studio, Chris Riccamini of WePay. Chris, welcome to Streaming Audio. Oh, thanks for having me on. You got it. Hey, tell uh, the audience, our audience, a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, so my name is Chris. I've uh, been in the industry for about 10 years or so. Um, I started my career initially at PayPal, where I spent about a, a year uh, or two. And then I uh, joined LinkedIn around 2008 and um, spent some time there doing a bunch of stuff, initially data science, uh, and then really switched over to productizing data science products on the engineering side uh, and uh, spent a bunch of time with uh, Jay Kreps, the founder of uh, Confluent, along with- Jay Kreps. Yes, <laughs> I've seen pictures. Yeah. <laughs> along with uh, Neha and June. We all used to sit next to each other and- um, so I spent some time uh, productizing stuff, working on Hadoop. Uh, and then uh, I want to say around 2010 or so, maybe to late 2009 or something, uh, Jay started working on Kafka as a system to replace a legacy uh, um, system that we had there called WebTrack, which was really uh, a system to move logs off of uh, what we called our, our web heads that are the front ends uh, into our uh, Hadoop ecosystem. So sort of uh, uh, part of a yield, uh, ETL stack to get the data into Hadoop for us. Um, and so uh, as part of my Hadoop work, I got kind of uh, um, introduced to Kafka. And from there, I spent a, uh, some, I did a brief segue doing uh, service discovery work, a system similar kind of to Finagle from Twitter. Uh, it's called, Pegasus. And then eventually I uh, got involved with Kafka through a, a stream processing system that we wanted to build called Samza. Um, and more recently I've uh, joined WePay. I've been working on their data infrastructure uh, as well as their payment infrastructure. All right. Uh, some really cool stuff there. I mean, you were involved with uh, primordial Kafka. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, conceptually, uh, the same thing as we work with these days, but, you know, from an API and kind of platform perspective, um, it's, it's sort of the, the days of Kafka assembly language. Yeah. Uh, it, it was, it was a very yeah. different system. Like, uh, it, it didn't, you know, have, uh, group management and it had sort of just simple consumer kind of stuff. And, uh, a lot of the bells and whistles that are there now obviously weren't there. Yeah. <laughs> Different no, protocol. No. <laughs> oh, yeah, seriously, that yeah, it was different. Uh, different client protocol, different, and not no groups. That's just yeah, wow. Um, so you know, we 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 think of. Um, I'm a relative newcomer to the Kafka ecosystem. Um, I, I've been around for a couple of years, and so I think of Kafka before Connect as 
primitive Kafka or like <laughs> Kafka before Kafka streams. And, and you're like, yeah, well, that's a door. Uh, yeah. yeah. I didn't have in my day, Sonny, we didn't have consumer groups. Uh, that's amazing. So uh, you mentioned SAMHSA and um, I would love to dive into that a little bit. I mean, that's, that's a, uh, and you know, you, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I see SAMHSA and storm as the first generation stream processing frameworks. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair comparison. And Storm Storm was around for a while before uh, we wrote Samza, and there were, there were a slew of other ones actually with varying degrees of success. It, it turns out the stream processing field is actually pretty rich and has been around for a long time. Um, but up until recently, uh, really, I think with uh, the advent of uh, Kafka and a few of these other uh, modern streaming systems, uh, um, the underlying transport has been. Uh, a little weak. The, the semantic guarantees you get around exactly once, uh, data loss and all that kind of stuff have been uh, rough. So most systems back then and Storm uh, included would ingest uh, data from various messaging systems. But then during the stream processing phase, they would flip over to their own transport. Um, and I believe at the time uh, Storm was integrated with 0MQ and would use, you know, sort of a souped up TCP low latency connection between its various processors to do uh, the different phases of processing internally. Okay, so between between bolts and spouts and things, that was that was zero MQ. I, I mean, be- which. Yeah. TCP, in other yeah, words. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, I, I, th- th- this is going back a ways, but this is my uh, recollection of it. Um, and because LinkedIn was a fairly heavy uh, Kafka shop, obviously, and we had this sort of nice transport layer, and we knew we were going in the direction of exactly once messaging, and we already had uh, fairly strong guarantees around at least once. Um, we believed that we could build a system that uh, used Kafka itself as the transport. Um, and so that was uh, sort of the initial motivation. I think as we dug in more, we looked at uh, the transactionality guarantees that Storm in particular provided around, uh, you know, transactional bolts uh, or transactional, uh, I forget what they call them, topologies or flows. Uh, and the way that was implemented uh, was a little suspect to us. Um, and so uh, we basically on the SAMSA side, we're able to punt on all that hard stuff down into the Kafka layer since we were just leveraging Kafka itself. Um, and so that's sort of how the uh, discussion kicked off around it. Um, I think l- shortly after we we committed to it, uh, we then uh, sort of spent some time thinking about how to manage state. And I think if you look, for example, at uh, the Kafka stream state management with RocksDB and stuff, uh, a lot of those ideas, uh, I want to say, uh, stemmed from uh, some of the work in SAMHSA. In fact, uh, SAMHSA used RocksDB. Uh, we updated and wrote some of the uh, RocksDB Java bindings in order to, to make that happen for SAMHSA. So um, I, th- I think uh, that's a brief history of some of the features and differences that, that, um, that drove us to write it. Now, the differences between something like SAMHSA and, and these more modern systems like uh, Flume, sorry, not Flume. Flink, <laughs> Flink. Flink, maybe. Yeah. yeah, I'm still in the log transport mindset. That's, that's, that's uh, okay. You're, we're, we're reviewing history here. So. Yeah. Uh, so some of the more modern uh, systems, I think, in particular, like Flink, uh, Dataflow, um, and Spark streaming and stuff, is is um, I, I think um, a lot of the ideas are similar, but the implementations uh, are, are subtly different. 
Um, I think in the case of uh, Spark Streaming, for example, uh, their micro batching approach uh, is interesting, but but different and has different trade offs from something like Samza, um, which you could argue is sort of micro batching, assuming you're batching uh, messages when you send to Kafka, um, but it, it's, it's slightly different, right? Um, so there's some subtle differences there. Um, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> now, Samza, Samza still behaved as a consumer, though, right? It it would consume a message and and run its do its do its computation. Yeah, exactly. It, it was actually, uh, it, and I believe it still is a fairly uh, lightweight system. So it's essentially a wrapper, and it looks in a lot of respects like Kafka Connects API in that it just wraps the consumers and producers. Kafka provides a, a slightly nicer, uh, easier to use API in the common case. Um, and, you know, I think when we initially wrote it, it was like 10,000 lines of code. It wasn't, it wasn't a ton of code. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And it, uh, it still reflects, I guess it, and it, it was, uh, tightly coupled to Kafka. Is that? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, okay. and so we, well, <laughs> I don't want to mischaracterize it. There are interfaces that cover, uh, the, uh, over the consumer and producer, um, and it is pluggable. And I believe LinkedIn has, uh, since I've left, integrated it with numerous other systems. I think uh, Kinesis, maybe as well as uh, some of the Azure, uh, now that they're owned by Microsoft, some of the Azure uh, messaging systems as well. Sure. So it's possible. But I think that, you know, you get a little bit of this funky abstraction where like uh, a lot of the guarantees that you uh, expect uh, from Kafka might or might not be there on the other systems. And so some of the uh, features sort of cease to work when you flip over to the other uh, systems. Got it. Got yeah. it. So it is abstracted, but uh, moderately yeah. leaky. Yeah. And, and it's it's as maybe as coupled to the Kafka ecosystem as it is to the Franz Kafka literary ecosystem, uh, <laughs> borrowing, borrowing a name from a, a Kafka character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would mention, uh, and I think this was a, a big lesson learned for us, was uh, with Samza, we uh, made a decision early on to couple it very tightly uh, with a separate scheduling system. So uh, in, in our case, we chose Yarn because we were uh, heavy on Hadoop at the time, and we lo- there was Yarn available to us. There was Mesos. Uh, and yarn, yarn was fairly new at the time, right? Yeah. So when we adopted it, I want to say I was working uh, on integrating it in 022. So this was like, you know, very, very alpha. I think Hortonworks was just getting started and we were, I were talking with Arun and some of the other folks over there uh, about it. And so, so it was like very alpha and we gambled uh, and integrated and it worked fine. It worked really well for us because we were a yarn shop. And as things progressed, they added C groups, uh, which gave us some isolation um, it, there was a bit of a sort of an impedance mismatch between Yarn as a batch scheduler and Yarn as a stream processing scheduler in terms of like e- even sort of uh, cosmetic details like the fact that uh, there's a progress bar on the Yarn scheduler, but stream <laughs> processors don't ever finish, you know. Right. Um, but that's sort always, of, always that's, a zero. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a symptom of a broader thing about this uh, the concept that they were thinking batch first and we were thinking sort of more long running first. Um, but the lesson learned there was as we as we expanded out and open sourced it beyond LinkedIn, there's like the discovery that some folks are using Mesos, some folks are using Terraform, some folks are using Android. Like there's all different kinds of organizations. And then now with Kubernetes, uh, you know, blowing up the way it is, there's all kinds of different orchestration layers and, and deployment systems and all that kind of stuff. And um, it made a it made it tricky to to get adoption because you know if if, if you need to install Yarn to run it, uh, that's a 
that's a heavy load if you're not running Yarn right now. Um, and so we did we did abs- uh, abstract over it, and some folks contributed like a Meso scheduler and stuff. But but I think one of the lessons learned was just that uh, it was it probably would have been wiser to decouple uh, the, the scheduling and deployment from the uh, execution framework. Um, I think I, again, I think that's something that uh, that got applied pretty nicely to the Kafka Streams system uh, that you guys have now, where Absolutely. It, it's not. Uh, it's not tightly coupled. So it's, it's a much easier uh, sell to get it into various enterprises and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That, oh, that makes so much sense. And so in, and in fairness to everybody who made those architectural decisions in SAMHSA at the time. So, uh, 2011? Yeah, it was, uh, I want to say 11, 12, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, So at, at that time, like leading up to then it had been a while since, much had changed in the way we deploy software. Um, you know, there were, uh, the, the, the cloud was becoming adopted or it was, you know, was, was being adopted then, but the deployment model still looked like, uh, the deployment model for bare metal servers. When you, you had EC2 instances was the abstraction. Yeah. And so, if that, if that, <laughs> right, right. So you didn't have, you, you know, we, we had every, everybody's, you know, whose career had grown up up to that point, who had come of age by then, had kind of been deploying code in the same way. And so you could make an architectural decision like, let's be super opinionated about this, and we're going to use Yarn, and Yarn is how we're going to do this. And so you have to set up that infrastructure, and it'll be great because it solves these problems. So you don't, you don't really think of deployment as a thing that needs to be very flexible. But now, in, in retrospect, that looks... Uh, you know, absolutely benighted. Because if you look at what's happened between 2011 and now with deployment, you know, it's become this very fast moving thing that that there's a different flavor of the month every 18 months. And, you know, <laughs> happens to be Kubernetes right now. And yeah. uh, like, you know, it's it needs to be container friendly and all. The, so yep. Kaf- Kafka streams kind of happening later in that in that interval seems to have learned those lessons and is is as unopinionated about deployment as, as a framework could be. Yeah. And I, you, you, I mean, that's exactly correct. Like the, the velocity with which things are, are changing and evolving. It, it's, uh, it's folly to, to tie yourself uh, too closely to any one thing. <laughs> right. It really like, you know, can I make a jar file run? Okay, good. That's all. Yeah. Right. <laughs> even, even that's a heavy load uh, <laughs> these days, asking people to run Java sometimes. That's it's a good exciting. point. That's a good point. You know, can I, can I give you a function and can you make it execute somewhere? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, kind of happening yeah and I, I, I again i don't want to mischaracterize that uh samsa is still this way uh there's been a, a ton of investment in it um and they have uh, a lot of features that i'm talking about now so they have you know standalone samsa they have sql on samsa they have beam implementation for the beam, beam apis oh, so it's, okay. it's come a long 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 way oh very um, much but uh, you know, when I was back in the day, when I was working on it, it uh, that was uh, definitely a lesson that we learned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which again was you know an appropriate lesson to learn at that time, since we were all just being being tutored. Um, what and and how active would you say SAMSA is today, just community wise and 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 deployment wise? Is it a going concern? Is it you know should people think of it as a previous generation technology? Uh, you know, um, so I'm not going to be able to answer that all that well. I've been uh, more focused on some other communities lately and haven't been as involved in the project. Um, what I will say is uh, I do know that the um, 
LinkedIn uh, investment is quite high. I know that they are running, you know, many many jobs. But like, it, it's a serious production system processing millions of messages per second at LinkedIn. Gotcha. Um, and I, I I'm also uh, aware of uh, several other uh, companies using it. Uh, um, although I don't know uh, if there's, I'm not going to use their names because I'm not sure if it's still the case. <laughs> right. <laughs> this right. is just last I spoke to them. Um, and I, you know, it's a, I would say it's a, a sort of a quiet community, but but still uh, very active in terms of development uh, from the core developers. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I, it's it's something that I would look at and consider. Uh, to to be frank, it, especially since it does have the uh, Beam API, it's it's you know essentially uh, able to be dropped in as a runtime for Beam. I don't think it has quite the coverage in terms of all the features uh, that it ticks off when you compare it to something like Flink uh, as a runtime for the Beam API, which is I think sort of best in class for Beam right now. Right. Um, but it's it's definitely a viable solution. I think it's uh, a simple. Uh, what I, the goal with it was always to make the API like very, fairly simple and straightforward. So, um, for some use cases, I think it would be totally reasonable. Awesome. Um, how about other, uh, you know, you, you, you go back a long way in, uh, Kafka time and really from, from, uh, uh, primordial times, what, (laughs) what lessons, have you learned, you know, what, what's, what's kind of your historical perspective, seeing it now and seeing it then, what other insights have you gleaned from being involved? Yeah. Uh, insights that I've gleaned, I guess, um, I'll answer a slightly different way, which is that I think there were a few, uh, step functions in the evolution of Kafka. Um, and, and, uh, the, the first one was obviously the implementation of it and using it as a replacement for our web track system and, and generally for, uh, some, some basic queuing use cases. The second one was really, I think, uh, after, um, uh, Jay and company had the idea to add log compaction, really treat Kafka, not just as a system for log transport and ag- aggregation, but actually as a system that could be used to house primary data. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the third, obviously, uh, is uh, when when Confluent got started and the amount of investment, in, especially independent investment, uh, really went up in it. I think it drove a ton of adoption. Um, and so I think uh, my my learning over the years has, has really been, I wouldn't say a learning, but just uh, a, a lot of the early vision coming to fruition now to where a lot of things that, that we wanted to be able to do with it and have been working towards for quite a while, uh, are, are now real, you know, viable things. Um, and, and so specifically the, the primary data stuff that I mentioned, uh, I think has been a real key, um, you know, feature that was added. And, and, uh, now that there are, this is maybe getting into, um, some blog post territory, but now that there are some, uh, uh, CDC connectors, change data capture connectors that can really get your, you, not just your log data and your queuing data, but your primary data into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think the big learning for me has been really a shift in paradigm from Kafka just as a um, queuing uh, system to, to really a full-fledged data integration system that includes uh, your primary data in a, in a real-time way, which is, which is a big shift. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is... Um... Uh, that is paradigm shift because our primary data stores, again, for the, for the size of the career of almost everybody who's building systems right now, um, 
you know, it's been relational databases. There, yeah. there are a few of us who go back before relational databases were commonplace, um, but not many, right? So that's like the one thing. And that's, I would say fundamentally sort of has a batch orientation like you were talking about before. Uh, there are just these little tells occasionally like a progress bar in a job scheduler, you know, there are things like that in relational databases that tell you this is, this is a place to put a thing and then go back to it later and find it, um, you know, rather than something that is, that is expecting things to be done in real time, yet also a place where you can keep things and remember them, uh, you know, which is kind of where Kafka has gotten. Yeah, I think, yeah, getting comfortable with uh, thinking of Kafka as a primary uh, store that, you know, can, can house source of truth data um, it is a, is a big deal. <laughs> and so sometimes I, cause I have this conversation with people a lot. I spend a lot of time in front of developers who are, who are trying to wrap their minds around Kafka and trying to understand what the big deal is and how this should impact, you know, their architectural decisions and all that. And the, the, uh, Kafka as a source of truth or as a primary data store, uh, you know, sometimes that's greeted with skepticism. I, I get people saying, well, okay, fine. It's, it's for handling events and it's a queue, um, you know, which I try to tell them it's really not, <laughs> but they, they sort of blanch a little bit at that. So what, um, what are the, what are the key factors? Like what, in your mind, or maybe just how would you make that argument if somebody said, really, can you do that with Kafka? Like, why is it the case that it's a primary data store? Uh, so I guess there's kind of two things to tease apart there. One is, is why, uh, you can and should think of it as a primary data store. And I think the other one is more about operational comfort and, you know, uh, being able to trust that it's durable enough to, you know, not lose your data once you're thinking of it as source of truth. Um, so on the, on the, you know, why can, or should you think of it as a, uh, primary data store? I think um, oftentimes examples are really helpful with that. So uh, I, I think, you know, to delve into history a bit uh, and, and as a way to, to provide an example, um, we have um, at, or we had at LinkedIn a graph database, um, which is essentially a, a database that we would use to do profile uh, connection traversal. So I'm, a, I'm connected to you, you're connected to Jay. Uh, we're two degrees apart. So you can issue queries kind of like a search engine uh, mm -hmm. to, to do graph traversal. Uh, and so we needed the profile connection data to get into that database. Um, the profile connection data is, is obviously in a more traditional relational database uh, or even a key value store at the time. And so what we, what we had back in the day uh, was something called Databus that would uh, basically replicate the database. And then it would use like initially Oracle triggers uh, and then later on, it got a little more more clever, but it would it would uh, essentially um, provide a feed of the data um, that a client could connect to and read, kind of similar to Kafka, right? Um, and the idea here is that uh, the graph database would have a data bus consumer that would read the messages from uh, this replica database and stuff them into uh, the graph database. Um, and the the trick is uh, every time you would want to bootstrap uh, a new um, a new graph node, uh, what they would do is spin up a new graph node with the data bus client and consume that data. By, by from graph the, node, you mean uh, server in a distributed graph database? Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 Sorry, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> <graph node. laughs> uh, yeah, I guess graph is a little overloaded these days. <laughs> yes. uh, 
anyway, they would spin it up and um, they would uh, have the database, data bus connection, connect to the relational database called a bootstrap DB. And they would essentially issue something akin to a select star on that database. Hmm. Uh, and they would read record by record and load the data into, um, into the downstream system. Um, and that doesn't scale all that well, right? Um, right. The, the graph database... Uh, or sorry, rather the, the replica database uh, getting hit with select stars while it's also receiving write traffic from the replication, just the amount of data that we had uh, using a, you know, initially Oracle, later on MySQL. Um, it, it just, you know, in some cases, we just never come back. Um, and so with, with something like Kafka, what you can do instead is, is put it, rather than this replica database, you can put it in between the upstream database and the downstream system. In this case, in my example, the, the graph database. So, so what you would do is replicate the, uh, the uh, data from MySQL or whatever RDBMS into uh, the Kafka system. And uh, you would use log compaction instead of time-based compaction, which means you have a complete set of the data um, in, in Kafka at this point. And then what you do is you uh, have your graph client or whatever downstream system you want uh, consume from the earliest offset in Kafka and read the data, right? And so um, this is sort of the first step towards Kafka as a primary data store because now when you're bootstrapping, you're not bootstrapping from essentially uh, either the primary database or a replica of the primary database. You're actually bootstrapping from Kafka. Um, the, the next step uh, is actually... Rather, so that's sort of a traditional CDC model, but you right. can also do a system where you flip that around and you write uh, directly to Kafka first, and then you have a consumer that will consume from Kafka and write into uh, the the database. Um, so this is, um, in, in my example, you would, if you were uh, adding a new connection, for example, rather than writing to the MySQL or Oracle database, having it replicate into Kafka asynchronously, and then having it from there get replicated into the graph database asynchronously, you would write the connection directly to Kafka as a, let's say, an Abra message. And then you would have two consumers. You would have one consumer that would read the Kafka event and uh, write it into your Oracle or MySQL RDBMS. And you would have another Kafka consumer that would read the message and write it into the graph database, right? And so at this point, the writes are going first to Kafka and it is now uh, a primary, um, it is now it's, your source of truth, right? It's the source of truth. Yeah. yeah you have a, yeah. a log of, of the yeah. events that have impinged on the system. Yeah, exactly. And there's a, there's a very, uh, there are trade-offs, right, between having a database up front versus a Kafka system up front. In fact, I believe um, Gwen had a, a, a nice blog post re recently um, where she was talking about uh, the, the trade-offs and sort of uh, putting the database first and using a more traditional CDC style pattern versus doing uh, more of an event sourcing uh, Kafka first kind of pattern. Um, and so I won't go into a ton of details because there are actually some great blog posts on that. Um, but that's sort of like the why, the architectural whys of, uh, you know, the advantages of, of what that gives you, right? Um, now, operationally, uh, whether or not you, you trust <laughs> Kafka and are capable of running it in a way uh, that, that makes it durable. I mean, some of that comes with experience. Um, I, I, I hate to say like, take my word for it. Um, but, uh, I think in a case of like, even at WePay, for example, um, we've just, uh, we started with a traditional CDC style setup where we have, um, in our case, MySQL replicating using Debezium into Kafka, um, and so if things went wrong and we lost data, we could always um, rebootstrap it from MySQL. And we spent, right. a, you know, maybe at least a year 
like that. Um, and developers got more and more comfortable using Kafka for, for example, queuing between web services and stuff. And as that happened, uh, I think just operationally, uh, we got uh, better at it um, and got to the point where we just became comfortable with it. And what I will say is there are also, if you're concerned about uh, data loss and stuff, there are a number of auditing systems out there. I think Uber has one that looks really interesting to me. LinkedIn built one in-house. Um, and I think it's it's doable uh, now that there are interceptors. Uh, now that interceptors are really a thing, it's sort of doable at the core Kafka level as well, where you can validate that things sent to Kafka appeared uh, to the other, on the other end to consumers. Um, so, uh, if you, if, if that sets your mind at ease, you can definitely pursue some of those tools as well. Uh, I think you've, uh, framed that second concern very precisely. And I, I encountered this a couple of summers ago. Um, we had a blog post, we keep talking about the blog, but we should keep talking about the blog. We had, we had a blog post that actually Jay wrote that said something, the title was something like, yes, it's okay to store data in Kafka. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. Right. Yeah. And it made it onto the front page of Hacker News. And I just as a, you know, regular, I guess, sort of lifestyle decision, don't usually read the comments on Hacker News. Um, and in this case, I, I did. In fact, it was my, my boss at the time. Um, <laughs> I was, I, I remember this evening very clearly. I was uh, on a hill taking some pictures of a sunset. Uh, just a hobby of mine, like relaxing, you know, I have my computer there and I get this Slack message from my boss. Hey, there's some interesting uh, discussion going on in the Hacker News, in Hacker News about that blog post. And could you get in there? And I'm like, yeah, that's great. And so I did. <laughs> and the kind of the tenor of the conversation was really, as you describe it, it was an unwillingness to trust that that's true. Uh, there, there wasn't really a substantive argument about facts, but it was more, no, Kafka's a queue. And I know there's a retention period, but you might set that up wrong. So you can't trust yeah. it. <laughs> and, and that's the nature of, that was kind of the nature of the discussion. And, and uh, it was, it was just an unwillingness to accept that this is a thing. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely some uh, sort of new things or scary uh, stuff yeah. going on there. Um, another interesting observation that I've just had recently is, uh, you know, uh, if you look at sort of things that people like, I, I imagine if you had that kind of conversation, but instead of Kafka, we were talking about using MySQL uh, as your primary data store, you would get almost no real pushback, except maybe from some DBAs who really fundamentally understand database persistence and stuff. Right. But in fact, if you look um, at the way that you can configure MySQL, uh, it's it's very very easy to to deploy a, a system in which uh, you quite easily get get data loss with MySQL. It's as simple as setting up a MySQL master with several slaves uh, using asynchronous replication. Which uh, the second you do that, uh, you have a write that goes to the master and then it dies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you have data loss, right? Yeah, well, it would be like Kafka with Axe equals, Axe equals none. I mean, Correct, that's a, exactly. Could... In, in fact, I, I would invite people who are uh, sort of interested in getting into the nitty-gritty about this to, to go and read uh, some of the discussion on the MySQL documentation around asynchronous, semi-synchronous, and lossless semi-synchronous replication in MySQL and try and map that to the way that Kafka works with its in-sync replicas and Axe uh, because there, there's a lot of similarity between the yeah, two. Yeah, that's a rather precise analogy. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, right. It's not like it's impossible. Uh, one can configure it in a, a, a not durable way, but 
again, there there are these things that that have happened that you know, like log compaction that have just sort of announced we're, we're really a thing that. Yeah, and I, I think there's there's sort of two uh, two layers. One is have you configured so have you configured the system to be able to not lose data? And and there you know there's a really great I think from Kafka Summit or Kafka World I forget who gave the po- the the talk, but there's a you know when it absolutely has to get there talk. I think that's the title of it. Uh, and it, it talks it goes through all the configuration parameters that are needed to set to give you uh, extremely strong durability in Kafka. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you, let's say you follow those, uh, the configuration, the next question is just, do you trust that there are no bugs in the system and that it's going to work according to the way that you've configured it, right? And right. I think there, like, <laughs> it's like testing, monitoring, faith, whatever, but but that, that leap uh, has to be uh, applied to any system that you use. The same thing is true, again, of like MySQL, Oracle, any system, if you configure it for durability, it's either going to work or it's going to have bugs, Right. Um, and so this is, again, like I said, the the new things are scary thing, but, but again, operational experience goes a long way. And I think allaying some of those concerns. Absolutely. And, um, trusting, you know, you, you said earlier, uh, trust me is not a great argument. Yeah. Uh, Trust yourself. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, to test it. And that's always my answer for, for, you know, people ask for performance benchmarks and, um, you know, I, I hate those. I, I say you, you should build something and you should measure it. So. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Trust your own accumulated operational experience. That said, you know, when uh, Chris Riccamini says that it works, I mean, as Kafka goes, um, you do kind of have a decent pedigree. Uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a it's a credible opinion. So, yeah, and I, I would say, uh, you know, um, that we pay we, we've been running it and it, it's. Uh, um, source of truth for some of our queuing data. So like once the data from a web service is put there, that's it. It's not like it's getting uh, uh, replicated somewhere else first. So, so we do use it in that manner for some yeah. stuff, but yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. But for the CDC uh, stuff, we obviously still have the um, upstream database that we can bootstrap off of, but, but we've, uh, we've never had to do that due to data loss. We usually just have to do that due to, uh, something uh, upstream like the, the database uh, <laughs> had an issue and we want to we want to reload it into Kafka because the, the schema change in an incompatible way, for example, and we have schema sure. compatibility set. So yeah, yeah, which yeah. is uh, which is totally legit. I mean, that's yeah. when you have a, a a source of truth and you get yeah. to rebuild things when it's yeah. convenient. Yeah. So let's uh, let's kind of transition to that. I mean, to set up uh, CDC a little bit and and to go back to uh, you were around when, uh, you know, Kafka was first sort of emerging from the oceans and flapping around in the mud. <laughs> um, it's, uh, the way, the way I always tell the story is, uh, major components of the Kafka platform have emerged in the community as formal things, uh, when the, the community kind of detected that people had to build this like connect Kafka connect, yeah, uh, which is the basis of CDC. If, if you have a primitive Kafka, that's just producers and consumers, or maybe that's all you knew that there was, you had, you had Java producer library and consumer library, and you had a, some brokers and some zookeeper and you just went and built stuff. Um, and you built non-trivial systems. You would at some point realize that you needed to extract a framework for doing integration things. You know, you, you'd write the same kind of dorky, uh, read from the database and produce or consume from the topic and dump into elastic code over and over again. And, and 
eventually you'd extract a framework, you know, you would yeah. just do that. <laughs> um, and people have done that, right? And then that's, that's, I think, an ever-present temptation for developers because frameworks are more fun to write than, than business software because you're the boss. You know, nobody is telling you strange things the code has to do. You just get to make it beautiful. And likewise, streams, you know, streams emerged because, well, uh, things get interesting in consumers and there's all kinds of things that the consumer library just doesn't do for you that you need. And so now there's streams and now there's KSQL and, you know, these things happen and, and they have emerged um, because those are legitimate needs. And I expect that pattern to continue. You know, I don't know what the next thing that, that the Kafka community will build is, but there'll be some other thing that we'll pluck. But um, let's get back to you. You did write a blog post recently on the Confluent blog, and, and we will hopefully link that in the show notes. Um, uh, but that had to do with CDC. So tell us, in, in case anybody doesn't know what those initials are, tell us what that means and uh, you know, just kind of walk us through your, yeah. your stuff. Yeah, so Center for D Disease Control, right? <laughs> that is it, yes. And that is where uh, <laughs> the zombie patient zero is studied. Yeah. Uh, no, so I actually, um, I have to admit, I, I wasn't aware of this particular acronym until fairly recently, like uh, really until I brushed up against uh, Debezium early on, which I guess now we're talking maybe three years ago or so, but it, it stands for change data capture. Um, and really what it's about is uh, taking data from a database and streaming it into um, a, a downstream, uh, you know, real-time system. Um, and it's, it's a concept that's been around for quite a while. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know, I'm not going to, attempt to give a history lesson or anything because I don't know uh, all that much history uh, about it. Um, but I will say that it was something that uh, um, as a pattern, I mentioned this data bus system uh, that LinkedIn had uh, as a pattern that, that, that was around in my mind for, for quite a while because of, of data bus initially, that was the system that got built. I, I want to say like really early on in, in uh, LinkedIn's uh, uh, history. So we're talking like, you know, 2005, 2006 timeframe. Um, and it was a pretty integral concept uh, for a lot of systems at LinkedIn, inclu including the graph database that I mentioned uh, for quite a while. So, so I have uh, understood the value of, of change data capture, I guess, even before knowing it was called change data capture. That it, that it was a thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but, but uh, long story short, um, to answer your, your, I guess, direct question the the it's just a, a, a pattern for sourcing data from more traditional uh, or even non-traditional databases. Uh, for example, we're looking at Cassandra as a source now, um, but my, MySQL, Oracle, MongoDB, those kind of systems and loading the data into uh, uh, a system so that uh, downstream so that you can stream it elsewhere. Yep. There you go. So uh, detecting changes in a database and turning those into Messages in a Kafka topic. You just yeah. think of it that way. Uh, <laughs> and and there's there's the and generally when in in the Kafka world when we say change data capture, uh, we mean not the Kafka Connect JDBC connector. So if you're familiar with that, uh, that's that's a, a super not uh, what's what's the way super general way to just issue a query against yeah. the database. That's you a, that's mentioned. Go ahead. I was just going to say that's a really good point of clarification that I should have called out. Yeah, it's not. Um, it's not uh, I, the JDBC one. I would I would classify as essentially a periodic batch based thing where it's issuing a query 
getting the data, loading it, turning around, issuing another query, getting the data, loading it. With, with change data capture, typically what you're doing is on a much more granular level, as events are happening, you are loading them into the downstream system. So I mentioned early on with Oracle, we use triggers. So every time an event would happen uh, uh, in the database, a trigger would occur that would update this other table, uh, and, and you, would, uh, you would essentially uh, use that to, to get notifications. Um, and now with Kafka, an example with Debezium would be uh, the Debezium connector will connect to the MySQL bin log. So this is the replication feed that other MySQL uh, replicas would also consume, uh, which is a real-time thing. It actually gets written to before the underlying storage engine like in ODB. Uh, and so it replicates that into, into Kafka in, in real time. Right, right. So it's, it's um, you know, really the straight dope. It's, it's yeah. the, the, the mutations that, happened to the database yeah uh, literally extracted and, and written as messages. yeah and there's there's a bunch of subtle nuances that make that really valuable so for example if you're doing a more traditional polling based uh system uh, or the jdbc connector that you mentioned um it is it is unable to detect hard deletes in some cases so for example if you insert a row and then delete it really quickly uh and you pull uh your data every you know 200 milliseconds or two seconds or whatever, you may not see that that thing was inserted and then deleted. So you, you actually don't get a complete copy, right? But with a bin log uh, or, you know, a trigger, whatever it is, uh, you see that there was both an insert and a delete. Um, and so that, that can be very valuable. Um, and that's just one example. There are actually many examples. Uh, and I, <laughs> not to toot my own horn, but I, I have another blog post that discusses, discusses this. I think it's called uh, something like, so you want to build a, a Kafka source connector, not the, not the, most attractive title, but it, it talks about trade-offs between polling-based versus uh, real-time-based replication. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Um, and walk us through what, finally, now we're at the point where we can talk about what uh, this the recent blog post of yours and what you're doing at WePay. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's see. Um, I joined WePay about four years ago uh, and in you know, LinkedIn was not, uh, you know, on the cloud really at all when I was there. Um, but WePay was fully in the cloud and uh, really uh, heavily integrated with uh, Google Cloud. And uh, one of my jobs early on was to spin up uh, a data warehouse there. Um, and they, you know, prior to that, I had just been using uh, MySQL Replica as a data warehouse. And so uh, we picked up uh, BigQuery, uh, which is... Um, the data warehouse cloud hosted solution that um, Google Cloud provides is actually a really fantastic system. It's kind of akin uh, in terms of use cases to something like Redshift um, in AWS or more traditional systems like Greenplum, Vertica, Astrodata, um, those kind of systems. So um, initially, we, we loaded that up and integrated it with um, Airflow, which is kind of your, your more traditional batch-based thing where every N minutes or every N hours, it's going to run a select on the upstream database and then uh, load the data into BigQuery. Um, but we always knew we wanted to do uh, a CDC uh, implementation. Uh, and so the, the Airflow stuff was really more of like a, um, a case where we just needed something quick and dirty to get up and running. Um, so eventually we switched over to uh, uh, Debezium and Kafka for that pipeline. So what we do now is we, um, we use Debezium to connect MySQL up to uh, Kafka. We stream that data into Kafka. And then from Kafka, we wrote another uh, Kafka Connect connector that's open source uh, called KCBQ, Kafka Connect BigQuery. 
again, not the fanciest name, um, but what that will do is stream data from Kafka and insert it into uh, BigQuery. And one of the cool things BigQuery has is a, a streaming API. So you can, you can do uh, essentially real-time inserts into your data warehouse. This is as opposed to something like Hadoop, where traditionally you've had to do sort of batch HDFS loads into the file system, and it didn't really have much of a streaming uh, file system API. Right. Um, so it's, it's pretty slick. Um, and so with that system set up, uh, you know, now that the latency between production changes uh, in our upstream databases and what we see in our data warehouse is like under two seconds. Um, oh, which, wow. Yeah, it opens up a myriad of like use cases you wouldn't do with a normal data warehousing system. For example, uh, developer debugging, like being able to see your data, your production data in real time uh, means that you can now like triage issues when, when, when problems pop up. Uh, which is, again, not something you would do in a data warehouse where you're loading the data once a day or something, right? Um, right. So, so, you know, recently I kind of, you know, so I, I'm, I'm loving, you know, BigQuery and we're using it and it's solving a lot of our use cases. But it started to occur to me, you know, um, you know this, is, this is a, a you know, a cloud-based system. There is no open source BigQuery. There is no, um, uh, you know, way for us to, to really not use BigQuery uh, yeah, rather right. to use BigQuery without Google Cloud, right? And cloud, so, cloud vendor lock-in has occurred. Exactly, right? The, the big vendor lock-in fear. And, I, and what I was asking myself is, why, why am I not worried <laughs> about vendor lock-in in this case? And, and what I realized was, um, you know, A, again, Big, BigQuery is a fantastic system. And so there's, there's some amount of just vendor lock-in that you're absolutely willing to pay when the system is really good. Um, but B, uh, having the data source uh, from Kafka... Um, makes the data quite portable. So if we ever, you know, just hypothetically, if we ever did want to uh, either move off of BigQuery or uh, maybe BigQuery had a use case, wasn't good at a specific use case that we wanted, um, we could tee off the data from Kafka into another system. And so, um, you know, it's, it sort of just made clear to me that, uh, you know, Kafka is really, um, in, in my mind, uh, something that, uh, I, I said in the post, it's sort of akin to an escape hatch, where if you if you got your data in Kafka, it just makes it so much more portable. Um, which means that you know vendor lock in is one case where uh, if you decide you want to uh, move to another system because of contract negotiation or, or whatever it is, uh, you can you can do that. But also there's other uh, situations where maybe there's just another system that is more appropriate for your workload. Uh, maybe there's a new system that, that provides new some characteristic uh, you'd like to use. Maybe maybe you'd want to keep the existing system, but also new, use a new system. And having Kafka plus Kafka Connect makes all that stuff actually way more straightforward. Um, I think uh, at some point, Jay had a diagram where he had like all the systems an organization might want to use. And this giant ball of yarn, where you're, which were your ETL pipelines from system A to system B, and then from system A to system C, and it was just like essentially the transitive closure of the graph of all the systems that you had. So it's like this yes. chaos, right? With, and, and with with squiggly lines, to make it work. yeah, and probably yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just to overemphasize it, right? Yeah. Um, yes. But with, with Kafka in there as the the um, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, the service bus or data integration layer or whatever you want to call it, um, uh, it really. Um, started to open the door for a more elegant and flexible implementation. I think once you overlay Kafka Connect on top of that, and that ecosystem begins to thrive, which is, I would argue, it, it, it's thriving now. Um, the idea that, uh, well, today we're running in BigQuery, but tomorrow we decide we actually want like to be able to query that data in a more low latency way, maybe on key value, that we could hook up like a Cassandra sync, or uh, maybe we want to search it, so we want to hook up uh, Elasticsearch sync. Like, that's 
really doable and, and really powerful because it's so doable. Um, and, and so I just, uh, it makes me worry a lot less about uh, the infrastructure that we have to pick. So stepping back just from vendor lock-in to um, when you are faced with needing to introduce something into the ecosystem. So an example, let's, let's suppose you need an OLAP system. Now you've got Druid uh, and you've got uh, Pino, which is another uh, open source LinkedIn system. Um, and so you need to make a decision about which OLAP system to use. Well, if you've got your data in Kafka, um, a, if you make the wrong choice, it's a lot easier to back out. <laughs> um, like you can, you can have the sync load the data into the other system. Uh, and, and B, you could theoretically run them both, uh, you know, uh, simultaneously to, to test stuff out if you'd like to, assuming that they both have syncs, right? Um, so it just, it makes uh, your infrastructure ecosystem a lot more agile, having it portable in the Kafka world. Right. Uh, and, you know, vendor lock-in is a, is a, is a slippery concept. And yeah. I like to frame it more in terms of what is the transaction cost of changing an architectural decision. Yeah. And, and, that's, and I, I like to step away just from vendor lock-in because I think that is one dimension of a broader problem just around the inflexibility of once you get your data into a piece of infrastructure, it traditionally has been hard to, to get it out. And there, there may be many reasons why you want to get it out. Just vendor lock-in is just one reason. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, pricing leverage with a cloud vendor is a good thing. Somebody yeah. <laughs> that wants that, but yeah. uh, kind of from the the developer and architect perspective, we might be interested in, as you said, uh, you know, a new place to process data, a new API, a new framework, a new thing, and we want the cost of transitioning that thing to be low. Uh, and Kafka plus Connect gives you options. I mean, Kafka, inside the Kafka ecosystem, there are strong ETL. Uh, possibilities like KSQL and Kafka streams. You can use those. You can use other things. Uh, you just, you, you get flexibility. Once yeah. You yeah, t totally. And I, I, to be clear, uh, I'm not making the claim that it's zero cost. So like once, I mean, to take you know, a concrete example, once you start writing uh, queries and automate reports and all that kind of stuff against BigQuery, there is a switching cost to migrating all of the systems that are using uh, the system to the other system. But uh, at least spinning up the new system uh, and, and running in parallel uh, and, you know, loading the data up is a lot easier. Um, and that, that traditionally, uh, that's been like half the battle. <laughs> right. hundred percent. Yeah. My guest today has been Chris Riccomini. Chris, thanks for being part of Streaming Audio. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. And there you have it. I hope that was helpful to you. If you've got questions, you can ask me at at TLBerglund on Twitter. That's T-L-B-E-R-G-L-U-N-D. Or you can leave a comment on any of our YouTube videos. Your question might be featured on the next episode of Streaming Audio. And feel free to subscribe to our YouTube channel and this podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. And if you subscribe through iTunes, be sure to leave us a review there. That helps other people discover the podcast and just generally helps us get the word out. We appreciate your support. See you next time.